Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome to a Talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 59, 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion, Part 1. Um, the Inappropriate Conversations original episodes for 59 and 60, I bet you can guess what the second one, uh, Inappropriate Conversations 60, was called, Part 2 of 2. Uh, those came out in the middle of June in 2011 and covered material that was written in essay form going back into the 1990s. I'm going to guess 1997 could have been a little bit earlier than that. And the reason that the Talkback episode is happening right now is that this year, in late January 2021, we're dealing with a period of time where where the pro-life movement holds their annual sort of national right to life march on Washington, D.C., that sort of thing. Now, in the era of coronavirus, COVID-19 impacts all sorts of things, including modes of protest. And my understanding is that the National Right to Life event is going to happen maybe virtually via Zoom, something like that. And it's tentatively slated, at the time I'm recording this, for tomorrow. Now, uh, Friday, rather. This episode is being recorded on Wednesday night, January 27th. It'll probably be released one day from now, Thursday, maybe even early in the morning Thursday. And I intend to release part one in its talkback form and part two in its talkback form on back-to-back days. The idea being to get all ten arguments in the areas of agreement about abortion speech out there in front of this particular annual event. Now, I think we're talking about something like the 48th year since Roe versus Wade, and that's where the timing comes from. The pro-life movement does their thing uh, to mark uh, the passage of Roe versus Wade as if it was some sort of uh, seminal moment in time. And perhaps an argument can be made that they're right about that. I'm sure the people uh, in the pro-choice movement would say, say it as well, that the Roe Ro versus Wade was a seminal moment in time. But the mistake that either side might make is presuming that on that day, abortion in America began, and that abortion didn't exist at all before that, and certainly not for more than 100 years before that. And the truth is that if you study ancient American history and you know concepts of 250 years ago and uh, what the idea of the quickening meant and what doctors were willing to do even back in you know the Victorian era or the um, the Puritan time frame, that we've always had some form of medical doctors intervening on behalf of women in situations where there were significant problems with their pregnancy. And, you know, consequences, not just uh, life and death consequences, but other consequences would play a role. And so it wasn't like in 1973, abortion didn't exist on January 1st and poof, leapt into existence by the end of the month. And yet that is kind of how the pro-life movement frames their annual event. So I wanted to get these arguments out there ahead of it. And a big reason why is that I noticed just kind of when thinking about looking at talkback episodes and bringing old original um, material, this is 2011 on Inappropriate Conversations, back to the front, um, giving it an intro, re-releasing it, maybe introducing it to a new audience, that this material is actually much older than that. If you think of Roe versus Wade being 1973... And this speech was actually written somewhere in the middle of the 1990s. It was inspired in a lot of ways by what Operation Rescue did in the American Midwest 
Uh, Wichita, Kansas, for example. I want to say that was 92, 93, somewhere in that ballpark. So this speech was, you know, came as a reaction to that. Well, now, here we are in 2021, meaning from a distance perspective, we're roughly as far away from the original writing of the words I'm going to share in these back-to-back episodes as the moment of writing that speech originally was from the actual Supreme Court case being ruled on in 1973. So in some ways, it was uh, about time that I wrote and released 10 Areas of Agreement about abortion in the first place, and it's certainly, you know, time I revisited it. I'll get right to the end of this introductory segment and put a challenge out there that I may even restate in the introduction to part two, because it is what's on my mind. But before we go there, I do like to bring in some current events to place talkback episodes in a point in time. We are right now roughly roughly a week from the inauguration of Joe Biden as the next president of the United States, uh, the president number 46, replacing number 45, and all of the ugliness that happened, not just in the month of January, not just in January 20, uh, January 6th, but even before then, uh, the, you know, the lies, the misinformation, the uh, trying to inspire mob violence, succeeding in inspiring mob violence, all those sort of things, uh, we've had a rough go. And the thing that I would like to call out is that I'm going to be extremely unhappy as a citizen if this, say, first five, six months of this year, with a new Congress convened, with a new president in, the, in office, with hopefully a less corrupt attorney general leading a Department of Justice, I would like to see not just arrests made of the people who were duped and who behaved violently and criminally inside the United States Capitol in the first week of January, but consequences for those who fueled that fire by continuing to tell the big lie. The first focus I would have is on more than a handful of senators, more than a hundred congressional representatives, each being called before a censure board of some sort and asked to give an accounting of themselves. And it really is very simple. So simple that I can do it. I don't need a full episode to do this, for example. Now, the last recording I did, released about a week ago, was Indecision 2020. And that looked at some other issues in more detail surrounding the uh, the recent presidential election last year and the aftermath, including the events that the criminal events that happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. But this is the aftermath of that. And what should be done, both in the House and in the Senate, is that those senators who voted not to certify the election of Joe Biden, those who were claiming that there was some sort of fraud and that fraud led, led them not just to oppose democracy in action and the peaceful transfer of power in the United States, but also to do so in such a way where we actually have tons of video footage of them in inciting the crowd, uh, encouraging the crowd, applauding the crowd, in some cases tweeting their support for the crowd as it was happening. Now, last episode I recorded, I, I kind of gave my point of view about the president, and I think that the reason, number one reason, of course, that he should be convicted, should be barred from ever holding elected office in this country again, is that he could have stopped all this. He was in the unique position of saying, hey, this is not what I wanted. You are not doing what I asked. You are behaving in a way that is detrimental to not just your own um, safety, you know, to your own you know, patriotic citizenship, 
but to me and my cause. And if you don't immediately leave the U.S. Capitol and go back to your hotel, your hotels, your beds and breakfast, go back to wherever you came from, I will immediately concede the election, um, renounce any claims of fraud that he could have gone nuclear on his own people, so to speak, but he chose not to. They were doing what he wanted them to do, which is why he he ended his address long after the siege had petered out unsuccessful. If the margin of success was the assassination of the vice president or the speaker of the house, it was unsuccessful by telling them that he loved them and he thought what they did was beautiful. I mean, he, he was in the exact opposite place and he should be held accountable for that. But if you've got a U.S. senator, just for example, who shared those false claims of fraud and a rigged election and all that other sort of stuff. And Ray rose not just a metaphorical, but a literal fist in support of the people who were going to literally on their way to ransacking the U.S. Capitol. And they're going to claim that they were doing all this because of fraud, because of a rigged election, because of massive improprieties. Well, then it's real simple. Let's call these senators as defendants of a sort before a jury of their peers in the United States Senate and have a corresponding activity happening on the other side in the House of Representatives and give them a choice. Either present the evidence so compelling that it would make logical sense out of not just what you did, but to some degree, some sense out of the consequences that happened from it. And if you cannot produce that evidence, then you have engaged in conduct unbecoming a, con- a congressional representative or a senator, and you should be expelled. And I would uh, turn my anger and my ire toward anyone else sitting in that august body who chose not to attach those kinds of consequences to somebody who told lies, who told lies that led to a riot or worse, and then even after the threat to human life, the murder of a police officer, everything else, still came back and told those lies, knowing they were lies, produce your evidence, hope it's compelling and convincing, or you should be expelled from Congress. Now, the flip side to that is, well, what if they can produce evidence? Now, obviously, they're not going to be able to produce evidence, in my opinion, that's compelling and convincing. Uh, I outlined that in the last Inappropriate Conversations recording, but more to the point, I don't think they can do it because if they had evidence that would have held up in a court of law, then their experiences, the the Trump campaign experience in front of judges, you know, 60 plus times, might have led to different results. So the overwhelming likelihood is that there is no compelling evidence and that these people were lying on the floor uh, of the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate and uh, their lies led to an insurrectionist right and they should be expelled from office as being unfit to serve. But even if somebody does actually have the kind of receipts you'd need to say, you know what, there's probably seventy to 80,000 examples of the kind of widespread voter fraud happening in just the three states that Trump might have needed to tilt the Electoral College balance, despite losing the popular vote by 7 million plus, that surely these people aren't producing logical evidence of 7 or 8 million fraudulent votes in favor of Biden. But if they could produce that evidence, and they chose not to produce the evidence, they held on to the evidence to keep it hidden. Maybe because the uh, existence of the evidence not yet revealed, not yet scrutinized, would have the maximum impact. It would raise the temperature of uh, uh, people in the Trump you know, camp 
fans of the former president who believe that they were disenfranchised, that it's the, just exactly the kind of thing, a bait, that could lure them into, I don't know, insurrection, that could make them go nuts. If they have compelling evidence that they didn't share when the compelling evidence could have made a difference, well, that's treason of a whole other scale here. Now they haven't just betrayed the American people and their oath of office and put into danger all of their you know, um, fellow senators, fellow representatives. Now in some ways they've kind of betrayed Trump and his legal team as well. If they've got the kind of evidence that would have justified voting against certifying the election then that evidence should have been produced before now. And there really is no argument that a senator who either lied about evidence that didn't exist or hid evidence that did exist has any business sitting in the United States Congress. Quick introduction. That's my worldview. I personally don't have any... I'm not mulling over from multiple angles and wrestling with the intellectual you know, situation behind what happened in January 2020. It's kind of cut and dried. There's a couple of different reasons why someone like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley might have committed acts so wrong they should be expelled from the Senate. But either way, it's kind of, listen, you either lied, you should be expelled, or you didn't lie, but you somehow committed sort of a crime against the court, if you will, by keeping evidence away from judges who could have, quote-unquote, done the right thing, had this evidence been released in some manner that wasn't designed to stoke a crowd and turn it into a violent mob. These are the kinds of questions that I've been asking for more than a decade now on Inappropriate Conversations, and uh, past episodes 59 and 60 are a good example. Intended to be a single speech, 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion, um, I, I set up these shows where uh, 59 begins with the different drummer and some introductory material so that at some point the speech can begin. Uh, Inappropriate Conversation 60 picks up the balance of the speech, sort of ends where 59 left off, to where this concept of this thing being presented in a single stream of, call it 75, 80 minutes of material, is not interrupted by a whole lot of house cleaning. The different drummer for Inappropriate Conversation 60 will come at the very end, just to kind of, again, keep the main material all together. Part of the reason I feel so compelled to do it, and part of the reason I'm going to include this concept in both the introduction to the first part and in the introduction to the second part is that these ideas from me have been out there milling around for more than 20 years. At the very least, we're talking about almost 24 years. The last date I have on a draft of this was summertime 1997. Again, I think there's a possibility that it was even older than that, that even one or two years or three years older, that some versions of this were, were coming into focus. But if we just say, well, hey, call it summer of 1997, we're talking about a long time ago. These questions and my point of view about them, these answers in some ways to questions have been out there for quite a while. And I think, generally speaking, there's going to be moments that would make somebody part of the pro-choice movement uncomfortable, uh, many moments that will make centrists uncomfortable, that's on purpose, and maybe more than either of those two, moments that I think seem to contradict what might be prevailing concepts in the pro-life movement. I have taken their points of view, I have studied them, considered them carefully, provided answers to them. And those answers, for more than two decades now, have gotten no response. 
my notion is that silence is assent. That if you're a staunch Republican living in the heart of the heart of the country, and you've seen the things that the outgoing president has done over the last three, four months, and you've seen the behavior of certain people in Congress, and you're aware of the fact that in court case after court case, no hard evidence was ever produced, and therefore all those cases were pretty much, you know, thrown out. They went, they went against the president's, you know, desires. And you're saying nothing. My attitude is, if you haven't spoken up by now, given pro, you know, provocations from people like me that would lead you to want to speak up, if you haven't spoken up by now, then I'm going to make the argument that you're okay with what happened on January 6th. You're comfortable with it. You know, I get it. Maybe the silence is just embarrassment. And that the real emotions on some folks who are politically conservative and, and living in an area where they're surrounded by other, you know, red state mentalities are just too embarrassed to speak up about it. But without hearing it, my attitude is you must agree with it. Here, I'm going to flip that on its head just a little bit. And see, I've produced for, you know, more than two decades now, 10 areas of agreement about abortion. These 10 areas of agreement, I think, are rock solid and sound. And the main reason I think so is that in all this time, whether in written form or now almost 10 years in podcast form, no one's refuted a single one of them. And that inability to refute the argument, that unwillingness to even try, I'm going to take that as yet another point of agreement. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about areas of agreement on the issue of abortion. Part one. Yes, I said part one. It is going to require a couple of parts to cover the amount of material that I want to cover because I feel that more than any other issue in America, certainly, and perhaps even in the world today, this issue is dumbed down and oversimplified and under discussed more than any other. And you often see people on a national stage uh, avoid covering it at all, saying, well, yeah, I'm done with that issue. There's no resolving it. And maybe they're right. Maybe there is no resolving it. But I don't think that we've actually given it a good try so far. What I want to do then is offer a couple of very quick words of introduction, bring on the different drummer, and then dive right into the core material, because I think this is going to require two parts, and the two parts are going to cut right down the middle of the actual main material. And I'll try not to do this where more than a week goes by between the release of the two different shows. But first, a quick thought. Uh, we're going to be dealing with some language barriers here, and I think one of the things that I have to do right up front is to insist that I'm going to let groups call themselves whatever they want to be called. So a lot of times, conversations about the controversy over abortion and some of the, the difficult issues never get off the ground 
Because instead of talking about what's really going on and what it means and why it's important, we end up spending a lot of time either calling each other names or having convoluted discussions over language. Here's what I mean. Should we be bothering to waste our time making a distinction about the difference, if there is any, between pro-choice and pro-abortion? And I think the answer to that question is no. And the reason I think the answer to the question is no is that we're still talking about one political point of view here and that you know, what label to put on it is, a very, is pretty close to an ad hominem attack, you know, depending on how you look at it. And at the very least, it doesn't get us down into the details of what people really think. And that's what I think matters most. Likewise, I don't think that there's anything to be gained by trying to have an argument about the difference between pro-life and anti-abortion. It kind of goes without saying that people in the modern American pro-life movement are anti-abortion. But I think it's okay to let people call themselves whatever they want to be called. We may raise some questions as we go about what choice means and about what pro-life means. And maybe I'll start there with just, again, a quick word of introduction. Because I don't intend to share my own personal feelings about abortion in the body of this work. Maybe when I get to the end of part two, I'll, I'll put a few ideas out there. It's not that I haven't shared this perspective. Last year, I raised some questions around the issue of abortion. And um, today, I may you know work to provide some answers, at least to the political question. Now, I'm not going to hit this from a moral perspective. I may not even be dealing purely with what we'd call ethics, but I think that when we look at it from a legal perspective, what should we be doing? How should the law handle it? The law's answer might be different from what the the Bible says or what the church would proscribe, and I think that that difference is also something that we probably would want to respect. But when it comes to this notion of what's pro-life means versus what pro-choice means, I just want to offer an introductory thought. Please don't think of this as me drawing a battle line. I'm simply raising a question that I think is a good one for us to have in mind, because I think that it is possible for somebody to have one perspective on what the we, we should do legally, how we should address a, a very difficult and contentious issue, and have a different perspective on what we should do morally. Anybody who has ever been the father of a child has had an opportunity to suggest that abortion is an alternative. I've never really been in that position because I've never had an unwanted child in my life. But I do believe in my heart that if I'd ever had an unwanted child in my life, I probably would have been very unlikely to have chosen abortion as a solution. But I don't know what I would do if I was in the situation where the woman had a different point of view. I've been blessed. Uh, every time my wife's been pregnant, both of us wanted her to be pregnant. But I want to talk about the language and say, okay, what if everyone who calls himself pro-life is actually pro-choice? If I made that statement that I believe that everyone who calls himself or herself pro-life is actually pro-choice, is this meaningless? Is this obfuscation? I've said right up front that I'm not interested in challenging the names and the labels people have picked for themselves. I believe that there is such a thing as pro-life and that pro-life people have a pro-life worldview. What I'm questioning is whether those pro-life people really and truly believe that they have not made a choice. Because I think they have. I think they have elected a free choice that's available to them because even if abortion were strictly illegal, there would be illegal options available to them and they would still probably as a pro-life adherent not choose those 
you know, less, uh, those riskier illegal options. So I think that a pro-life person is somebody who's made a choice and they've made a choice that they're, they're not in favor of abortion, that they would never get one. And that in this respect, they're pro-choice because there's lots of pro-choice people out there who have chosen not to get abortions when they could have, even in the case of an unwanted pregnancy, you don't stop being pro-choice if you choose to have a baby and take care of it. You don't even stop being pro-choice if you choose to have an unwanted pregnancy all the way to term and give the child up for adoption or take care of it. Those are valid pro-choice decisions because a choice is being made. What I mean by this is the difference is that if everyone is on this level pro-choice, the pro-life person has a different distinction in that they're not deciding what they individually need to be done. I don't believe that these are people who are saying, I can't control myself. And I know that on a moral level, if I had an unwanted pregnancy, I would never want to get an abortion. But I I know that I probably would anyway. I don't think so. I think your average pro-life person is saying they're opposed to abortion. They think that it's wrong. They would never get one, even if faced with that situation. But that's a choice they've made. The difference is solely about what that individual who is pro-life wants others to be able to choose. And that's a distinction that I want us to dwell on for a minute. If you're a pro-life person, you're pro-life in in the sense that you have made a pro-choice decision for yourself to choose life, but you don't want anyone else to be making that same decision on their own steam because they might make the decision in a way that you would disagree with. Perhaps that's a little bit uncharitable. Maybe it's more complex than that. And if so, Let's have an inappropriate conversation about it and explore this in some detail. But first, our different drummer, filmmaker, Tony Kay. If you know anything about filmmaker Tony Kay, why he's a different drummer on the topic of 10 areas of agreement about abortion won't be the least bit surprising. But I bet that most people have not seen his documentary, Lake of Fire. Most people who are familiar with Tony Kay at all are probably familiar with him only from the perspective of his Nazi skinhead prison drama, American History X, which earned an Academy Award nomination for acting to Edward Norton didn't earn any kudos for Norton's editing in the mind of Tony Kay. Let's talk briefly about who he is. And let's start with the bad part. You know, Tony Kay is somebody who uh, kind of introduced himself to the world by proclaiming that he is the greatest filmmaker in the history of British cinema, but uh, since Hitchcock, anyway, he's the second only to Hitchcock. Uh, I've read a quote that says, I consider myself to be the greatest craftsman, director, image maker on this planet. Those are fairly bold words for somebody who perhaps at the time had only shot music videos and commercials. And I'm not 100% convinced in my mind that the results uh, on the screen in the movie American History X back up his claim. But here's the problem. When you've got one of these spats between a uh, filmmaker who has been co-script writer and uh, director and his own cinematographer for American History X, It seems like maybe Tony Kay was taken completely by surprise at what the most important aspect of filmmaking is. Now, perhaps it's the director's job, but a director without creative control 
might be how you'd describe Tony Kay, or at least without the final cut, because not only was he opposed on his vision for the final cut of the film by the uh, studio that was producing the movie, he was also opposed by his lead actor, Norton. So American History X has a few moments that I think could be better. In some ways, the film dips a little bit too easily to cliche. There are moments which are um, violent in ways that perhaps don't necessarily drive the plot forward. That it's possible that the lead character's father was just a complete, unrepentant, horrible, abusive racist with no redeeming social or, or personal values. But it would have been a stronger film if he had some redeeming values. So there are issues with the movie. But how do you know whether the problems that could have made American History X a pretty good movie actually a much better or even a very great movie are is the gap there because of tony k's you know inability to live up to his bravado or is the gap there the things that k was complaining about where he felt that a different edit was essential to putting out the film that he wanted if he was truly going to be the most important british director since alfred hitchcock i would refer to this as being somewhat like the magnificent ambersons problem It is always easy for an artist, and even more so for that artist's fans, to imagine the movie he would have made had the studio not interfered as being brilliant, compared to the movie that actually did get made. There's a certain amount of speculation involved in that distinction, which doesn't really add up and doesn't really make sense. So Kay engaged in open warfare with his studio over the 1998 film American History X, going so far as to suggest that his name should be removed as director because without the editing control, without the final cut, it wasn't going to be the film that he envisioned it to be. And saying that instead, if they weren't going to take his name off, that he might legally change his name to Humpty Dumpty because he feels that the film should be released as being directed by Humpty Dumpty instead of Tony Kay. Now, that's a negative. There's a lot of pride here in this individual who, again, essentially had been directing videos. Uh, there's a, a story on the Internet um, that he probably shot as much or more footage for a 30-second Volvo ad during the um, early part of his career or the middle part of his career as a, as a commercial advertising director. He may have shot more footage for that ad than Woody Allen did for a feature film, The Length of Hannah and Her Sisters. So there's, there's a lot of pride at work here. There's a lot of, um, of pointless combativeness there. A failure, perhaps, to fully understand that filmmaking is always going to be a collaborative art. And that even if you are in charge of Final Cut, making yourself both a co-writer, a director, a cinematographer, and an editor, you still have a relationship with those actors and performers to make it a collaborative art. The thing for me that makes Tony Kaye so interesting as a director is that in the years between 1998 and 2006, what he really did, his greatest achievement, there were some other work that he accomplished during that time, but his greatest achievement is a documentary called Lake of Fire. From a credentials perspective, Lake of Fire was nominated for Best Documentary Film at the Independent Spirit Awards, the Chicago Film Critic Association Awards, and the Satellite Awards. It has been widely regarded as one of the best documentaries ever made, and that's an opinion that I share. The biggest criticism of the documentary is that it is long, and some have called it overlong. I think that other critics you may see speaking out about it um, give us an interesting insight into the political approach of the individuals. Because 
for whatever reason, and the reasons are not explicitly clear, unlike some filmmakers, Tony Kay did not place himself as a character inside his own documentary and make his motives a piece of the storytelling, the way you so often see nowadays, especially from Michael Moore, but even a little bit from Errol Morris. In this case, he simply tried to present both both sides in the issue, if two sides make sense in this case, from a wide variety of extremist perspectives. So every everything from the Roe person in the Roe versus Wade case who has changed positions to being a pro-life activist now, actually having you know become famous for being um, the centerpiece of the Supreme Court ruling in the United States that has triggered really the modern abortion debate, to looking at the, again, the very extreme uh, sides of religion. It's been called a graphic documentary, and you know, unlike some of the propaganda films that I believe is the way I would describe uh, movies that have been put out by the pro-life movement in an effort to cast abortion in the most hideous light possible, I think that Lake of Fire actually, in the moments where it does deal with abortion as a procedure and what abortion is, that the filmmaking there is fairly raw. There's no doubt that this would be a, an R-rated film if it were re-released theatrically. But also, fairly honest, pretty straightforward. And you could understand why somebody from a very strong pro-choice perspective would reject Lake of Fire, because they don't think that some of the scenes in the abortion clinic themselves are good filmmaking. But you would also definitely understand why somebody from a pro-life perspective, especially somebody who's a moderate, sort of politically moderate pro-life person, would just cringe at a lot of the footage that he has of scenes outside abortion clinics. Again, uh, he's not coming to this from the perspective of propaganda, not looking to whitewash one side to make it look better and show the other side at its, its worst possible extreme. He does a good job throughout the length of the running time of the film, showing both the moderate and not-so-moderate aspects of each side of the coin. Now, with a running time of 2 hours and 32 minutes, he has the kind of time you need to explore the issue in that depth. Anything less wouldn't have worked. Here's an online review by Nathan Southern. Just a quick capsule. With Lake of Fire... American History X Helmer and music video director Tony Kay climbs inside the decades-old abortion debate for a 152-minute study of the pro-life and pro-choice positions. In the process, he uncovers not an objective black-and-white issue, but a myriad of circumstances and sub-issues of tremendous moral complexity and ambiguity. He investigates these sub-philosophies and ideas that belie each side, with generous input and assistance from socialist Noam Chomsky and via interviews with Christian theologians and professors of bioethics, sociology, and philosophy. Kay also gives substantial considerations to the violence directed by certain extremists at abortion clinics, doctors, nurses, and the director worked on the picture for well over 15 years. It serves as a prime candidate for the definitive abortion documentary. However, be forewarned, Lake of Fire includes lengthy graphic depictions of abortion procedures and their physical and emotional side effects, and it is not for the squeamish or suitable for younger audiences. In some ways, that last sentence almost sums up why I regard Tony Kay as a different drummer. He's got issues, no doubt about it. He referred to himself when uh, trying to you know, promote his latest film, at a film festival as being somebody who has a speech impediment and the speech impediment is himself. I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at things because his talk has gotten him into lots of trouble, but I don't believe I've seen anyone do a better job of objectively for want of a better word, presenting all sides in this debate 
and putting it up on the screen in a way that I think right-minded people would have to suggest that regardless how complex the issue may be, a solution is necessary. Tony Kay, flaws and all, has made the definitive abortion documentary and has done so willfully and intentionally in a way that is not for the squeamish. It takes a lot of audacity to suggest that there are any areas of agreement around the issue of abortion. It may be even a Tony K level of audacity to suggest that there might be 10 areas of agreement on this issue and that I may be somebody who could bring those areas of agreement to light. I recognize that. I'll do the best I can to avoid that kind of hubris. And that's hard to do because what I want to share is um, essentially a speech. And uh, it was a speech never delivered. I uh, actually used my pseudonym, the author or Trey Arthur in this case, because I wanted to try to avoid what would have been potentially a violent backlash against me in the city that I lived. Had I found a way to publish this particular speech locally or deliver this speech in front of a large group of people in a public place, beyond any doubt, I would have been making myself a target for violence. And that's one of the things that the film Lake of Fire does a pretty good job of showing and showing, in my opinion, in a fairly unbiased way. So what I want to do is uh, let's presume some things, uh, either before a, a state legislature or a political rally of some sort, but not a political rally where I'm speaking to, quote unquote, my crowd. I would think of this more being a bipartisan, cross-functional sort of group where I'm really trying to speak to both sides of the issue that consider themselves to be polar opposites of each other, and also those people who are somewhat indifferent and in the middle and say, hey, we may not have an agreement right now that there are any areas of agreement whatsoever, that we have become very good uh, in America in particular in polarizing ourselves as us versus them. But if we don't have these agreements in place, we at least need to try them on for size because we need these agreements to move forward. We need these agreements to solve our problems. If the issue of abortion is worth addressing, if protecting reproductive rights of women is worth protecting, then this is a conversation that is well worth happening. So when we come back, allow me to switch from being Greg and going back to being the author or Trey Arthur and deliver a talk on 10 areas of agreement about the issue of abortion. Hey there, Atomic Trivia War fans. This is Jason with a quick blast. What comic strip character is known as Carl Alfred in Sweden and Iron Arm in Italy? If you guessed Popeye, you guessed correctly. What pungent herb does California farmer Chester Aaron grow 87 varieties of, including Creole Red, Spanish Roja, and Asian Tempest? It's not the marijuana, it is garlic. And who was caught stealing 42 times in 1982 to break Ty Cobb's single season record by four? That was Ricky Henderson. Tune in every week to the Atomic Trivia War, a new podcast on Simply Syndicated. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Trey Arthur, and my goal is to attempt the impossible. That being, I intend to present you with 10 areas of agreement on the issue of abortion. Whether we realize it or not, and whether the polarizing groups who intensify this issue are honest enough to acknowledge it or not, we have significant areas of agreement about the often oversimplified issue of abortion. 
I'd like to start with the two most common arguments. One will be a direct challenge to pro-life rhetoric. The other will be a direct challenge to pro-choice rhetoric. Both of these agreements are made elusive by the very oversimplifications of these groups. So let's look closely at these two areas from the perspective of the sloganeers. I do not want to examine what these groups say that is unnecessary because we have heard the words often quite loudly. Rather, I want to look at what these groups do. That is the key to understanding what a person truly thinks, including what we think about any facet of the abortion issue. Agreement 1. Abortion is not murder. Abortion is not murder. How can this be an area of agreement? Will actions speak louder than words? Yes, the pro-life movement quite loudly proclaims that abortion is murder. Allow me the first of what will be many biblical references. Faith without works is dead. What do the legislative works of those who would prohibit abortion suggest? Before you answer that, let me present a common example of how Americans use the justice system to deal with murder. A few years back, the mother of a Texas high school girl decided that her daughter was going to become a cheerleader at any cost. To achieve this goal, the woman concluded that one girl stood between her daughter and a spot on this coveted extracurricular team. Through careful plotting, the woman reasoned that her daughter's rival would lose the will to compete, or compete effectively, if the rival's mother met with a sudden horrible fate. So the woman hired a hitman to kill the mother, thereby setting into motion all the events that would place her daughter on the cheerleading team instead of this rival. When the woman was caught, the hitman testified against her, receiving a lesser sentence, and the woman was convicted and sentenced as the prime suspect in this conspiracy to commit murder. Does this example represent the values of the American criminal justice system adequately? I think so. If you have doubts, replace this suburban spectacle with organized crime. And grant me a little bit. Although he may have ordered and paid for hundreds of first-degree murders committed by underlings or hired men, this crime boss has not once taken blood upon his own hands. Would we trade a plea for any one of these cold-blooded killers for testimony against the crime boss? We all know the answer. It is yes, gladly. This is the break we've been looking for. The bottom line... Our society, quite correctly, identifies the murderer as the person who plots and initiates the crime for his or her benefit. The hitman, in these cases, is guilty too. Nevertheless, we punish him as a tool, a tool used by a criminal mind that must be stopped before he or she tries another tool. Why do we treat murder, particularly murder conspiracies, in this manner? Well, I've given you the answer. If we stop the tool, the hitman, and not the handyman behind the crime, the person who plots the murder and benefits from its execution, then we aren't, in fact, stopping the crime at all. This is because the real murderer, the crime boss, so to speak, will simply seek out another tool. 
Each of these two actual examples may serve as a guide for understanding how everyone in our society agrees to define murder. You have the facts. Each one of these is pretty well documented. Now I'd like to apply these cases to a hypothetical instance in order to underscore what murder is and how our society agrees to deal with that criminal problem. A woman is facing a career-damaging or career-ending threat from another person who has the ability to force her to leave her job without so much as a public statement. The woman sees only one way out of her dilemma, as she perceives correctly or not that the authorities cannot possibly help her. So she arranges a meeting with a brutal killer who murders with a knife and disposes of his victim's remains with acid. The woman then pays this person several days in advance in unmarked, non-sequentially numbered $20 bills. And finally, she delivers the unwitting victim to his executioner and waits in the room until she's sure that her problem has been solved, has been taken care of. This is a certainty that includes her holding the victim down in a chair while the killer assures her that his job is complete. What is our conclusion? The conclusion is that this woman is guilty of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and accessory to the same crime. She would be convicted, ceteris paribus, in every one of our United States, and every jury would sentence her to the limit. At the time that I wrote this in Kansas, she would have served a mandatory 40 years hard time before any eligibility for parole. In a state like neighboring Oklahoma, she would spend the rest of her life on death row, waiting for an execution that probably would never clear legal challenges. But in a state like Texas or Florida, she would be dead already by now. The logic here is quite simple. The woman in this example I presented sought and received an abortion, killing a child who, regardless its gestation, was fully human and deserving of equal rights to every other person in our society, born or unborn, and probably deserving of unequal or extra protection under the law due to its relative defenselessness. Did the abortionist commit murder? Well, the answer is only yes if the woman committed the same crime to a larger degree. He or she was the tool, but the woman was the crime boss. The abortion-performing doctor's sentence should be reduced as far as necessary in order to secure his testimony against the patient. After all, if we did stop him or her from performing the abortion, the woman would simply hire another hitman to help her solve her problem. There is no statute of limitations for the crime of murder, and there shouldn't be any such protective exception for a person who would commit cold-blooded, pre-planned, paid-in-advance crimes against a family relative? That means that as many as 30 or 40 million women must, as soon as possible, be rounded up and imprisoned while our justice system sorts out the reliability of evidence against them. Even if you make the mistake of granting an exception for women who received abortions during the so-called legal Roe v. Wade years... There is still a startling number of women aged 40 to 100 who need to spend the rest of their lives in prison awaiting execution if state legislatures and jurors see fit. This is true if abortion is murder. However, that is not our first area of agreement. Quite contrary, 
Our first area of agreement is that abortion is not murder. I arrived at my understanding of this consensus, not from the counter-arguments of the pro-choice movement, but from the pro-life movement itself. The pro-life movement, whatever it may say, does not believe that abortion is murder because it is steadfastly opposed to treating abortion in a manner consistent with our society's treatment of murder. Furthermore, to argue that abortion is somehow a distinct and different type of murder reveals an even greater intellectual dishonesty. If a murder is committed and we do not treat it in any way comparable to a murder crime, then what sense does it make to continue misusing the term murder by branching it off into new styles that connect with other conspiracy to murder crimes in name only? That same logic could easily designate illegal campaign contributions as another kind of murder. In the 1988 presidential debate at Atlanta, Georgia, then-Vice President George Bush became the first candidate for national office to honestly confront the paradox of abortion as murder. During a debate about the issue, Bush said that women must be held legally accountable to some degree for the part they play in abortion as a criminal act. Note here that Bush did not suggest that women be put to death for plotting, financing, and executing a first-degree murder. It would have been the legally and logically correct point of view, but he stopped far short of that point. Nevertheless, pro-life groups, both individually and en masse, cried out against Bush's reply, running the risk of publicly vilifying their own candidate for the presidency. The woman is a victim, too, most proclaimed. Like John Gotti, I suppose, or the Texas cheerleader moms, all of them are victims of the way society stresses misguided values. The bottom line, if the pregnant woman is a victim of abortion along with the unborn child, then abortion is not murder. Rather than try to weasel a new sub-definition of the word murder into our legal dictionaries, we would be well served to acknowledge agreement one in the abortion debate. Abortion is not murder. If you're a pro-life sloganeer who still wants to believe that abortion is murder, well, you're entitled to think as you wish. However, calling abortion murder does not communicate what you claim it does. In fact, it communicates what you have insisted it does not. To George Bush and countless others who have struggled to logically implement the pro-life movement's chief doctrine. Agreement 2. Abortion is a bad thing. Somewhere along the line, in an effort to defend a tenuous and embattled right, pro-choice groups have failed to recognize what is the most easily acknowledged of these agreements that I'm presenting. Abortion is a bad thing. I have already accused pro-life groups of failing miserably to mean what they say, and now I register the same accusation against pro-choice groups. When you listen to terms like right, it is easy to get lost in potential definitions. Are we talking about right versus wrong, right versus left, right versus responsibility, or even something altogether different? In each of these examples, right falls under the headings good, dominant, preferable, yet none of us would use those terms to describe abortion in personal terms. Does this mean that abortion cannot be a, quote, right, unquote? Is it possible for something to be both a right and at the same time undesirable and regrettable? Yes. 
Yes, and by Agreement 10, I hope to make that clear. Regardless, though, using the term right from a legal definition does not change the fact that abortion is a bad thing. Now, pro-choice groups may feel forced into a corner by supporting abortion in the midst of legal challenges from those who wish to ban the procedure. This defensive posture manifests itself in arguments like, abortion may be necessary and therefore it must be safe and legal. The fact that abortion must remain a choice, though, does not make abortion the correct choice in any circumstance. It also does not make abortion a good choice in spite of occasions when exercising this right may also be defensible as the right, meaning loosely correct, thing to do. Privately, most pro-choice groups are willing to acknowledge how regrettable abortion is. It is no great trick to get feedback on how nice it would be to live in a world without abortion. Pro-choice groups describe this world as one without unwanted pregnancy, abusive domestic situations, or life- and health-threatening obstetric circumstances. The fact that such a world will likely never exist does not make abortion any more acceptable. Even if it's proper for abortion to remain legal, even in a particular case where only a small number of abortion opponents would deny a particular woman the procedure due to the severity of her case or her situation, even if we lived in a world where only one more abortion would ever be chosen by a woman choosing to exercise her unencumbered right to decide— I'm betting that the woman in this singular example would agree with me. Abortion is a bad thing because she would prefer not to be faced with the necessity of making such a choice. Pro-choice groups need to understand that acknowledging this fact does not constitute a concession, only an honest assessment. Agreement 3. Human beings are a species in no danger of extinction. Having reviewed the two primary agreements that pro-life and pro-choice groups so dishonestly conceal, I'd like to look at areas where agreement is misunderstood due to confusion, more than efforts at misinformation. The first of these acts as a response to the bumper sticker that reads, Save the Baby Humans. Agreement three is that humans are a species in no danger of extinction. Generally speaking, political conservatives have no problem understanding this concept. Present an environmental problem to a person on the political right, and pretty soon you'll hear that the fate of human beings is not directly tied to the fate of a particular owl species. Or you'll hear that the impact of the depleting ozone layer has been dramatically overstated. You can easily substitute that with global warming or any other environmental concern. Conservatives have no trouble grasping the concept that extinction is not a concern for the baby humans, regardless what your fears may be for baby seals, baby whales, or baby spotted owls. World human population is now at the largest point in history. We are facing more danger from overpopulation than from underpopulation. Even those who argue against the case for zero population growth would acknowledge this all-too-obvious fact. Some pro-life groups, in an effort to oppose international population control programs that include abortion, are quick to point out that the Earth still has plenty of food, water, air, shelter, resources for everyone living today, and more. Those resources just aren't adequately distributed. The obvious problem, though, if we cannot adequately distribute so-called bountiful resources to 6 billion people, 
How can we distribute those same resources effectively to 10 billion people? If those numbers seem unrealistic to you, do a little math for me. Multiply the 1.5 million abortions a year that pro-life groups count against the American medical community with the 30-plus years that abortion has been legal, not including any illegal abortions performed at any time in our nation's history. I think you'll get a sense that our resources, bountiful or not, will need to be distributed with much greater effectiveness if we start treating the human race as an endangered species. It is not. To restate, human beings are not a species in any danger of extinction unless you count the way overpopulation increases the likelihood of self-annihilation. Agreement 4. You can stop abortion only by eliminating the demand, not the supply. Here are a couple of questions that must be asked, if not answered, before we can address Agreement 4. To the pro-choice side, does a pregnant woman who commits suicide perform a de facto abortion upon herself? To the pro-life side, after you pass a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal, when are you going to get around to preventing it? Tough questions become even tougher when political ideology is staked against the answer. You see, pro-choice groups aren't terribly interested in answering their question. The woman dying in such psychological pain is pretty much the whole pro-choice focus. At least this side would be willing to grant that they aren't answering me. The question I've posed to the pro-life side surely creates more confusion. Most pro-life advocates seem convinced that passing the right law or amendment is in and of itself the solution to the abortion problem. Failure to acknowledge agreement for is the root of both misunderstandings. You can stop abortion only by eliminating the demand, not the supply. As I've argued already in Agreement 1, perhaps to the discomfort of the pro-choice side, the woman is ultimately responsible for her abortion. If it's a right, she is the executor of that legal act. If it's a killing, same answer, she is the executor. Will abortion disappear if no doctor ever performs the procedure again? Of course not. In the early 1990s, a group of women in Dallas, Texas, concerned over the presidency of fellow Texan George Bush, gathered in a set of clandestine meetings. The topic? How to perform an abortion, legally or illegally, if necessary. The group did not include any doctors or nurses, at least not according to published accounts in the newspaper. Yet the women did possess both the information and the initiative to learn enough to teach themselves. Confidentially to reporters? They said they wanted to be ready in case of an emergency. What if abortions were banned? What if doctors frightened by terrorist tactics simply refused to help a desperate woman or even a dying woman? What if the patient was a daughter of a group member? What if it was a group member herself? The questions these women answered by forming a group to provide emergency abortions where needed, regardless the risk, should tell pro-life groups all they need to know about whether it's even possible to eliminate the supply of abortion. Unfortunately, the drive to ban abortion constitutionally has less to do with eliminating the procedure than it does with making it, quote, officially wrong, unquote. Agreement 5 will explore this paradox further, but this particular pro-life rationalization reveals a stunning admission. 
Many in the pro-life movement seem to acknowledge the impossibility of completely cutting the abortion supply. To those who don't share this doubt, let me remind you of the question I asked the pro-choice proponents to consider. Isn't a pregnant woman who commits a pregnancy-terminating suicide aborting her child at the same time she terminates her own life? Does this mean we are powerless to effectively deal with abortion? No. It simply means that the answer won't be as tidy as a ban. The solution won't be as self-righteously satisfying as calling a bad thing bad and making it go away. Abortion may be a classic example of morality's supply versus demand. A bad thing can be legal, and if no one ever does it, we are not morally harmed by its legality. Banning abortion is pointless, because the ban itself will not eliminate the supply. Whether it reduces supply is an argument fraught with more problems than it can solve. It champions the cause of making certain that the immorality of poor women killing their children will be prevented, while actually ensuring the immorality of those with a passport and cash flow, or with resourceful friends in Dallas. Pro-life groups have done almost as much as pro-choice groups to address the demand for abortion. What? Both, in other words. Both are mired so deeply in supply-related issues that no significant steps have been taken to bridge what should be a strong agreement. You can only prevent abortion by eliminating the demand, meaning the tragic circumstances that cause women to seek this choice. Efforts to reduce the supply of abortion or efforts to protect and defend the suppliers of abortion services, do not accomplish anything. Agreement 5. The immorality of abortion will not be reduced by making the practice stringently illegal. As I have just mentioned, many in the pro-life movement do not naively believe that banning abortion will make it disappear. They still pursue this course, though, out of a desire to protect the woman— from eternal damnation, I suppose, among other things. I call this the Christian argument against abortion. I do not imply that any other anti-abortion arguments are any less Christian, nor do I give this position any special status. On the contrary, I use the term Christian here because this pro-life position represents a fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity. First, let me apologize to anyone in the pro-life movement who is not a Christian. Although I'm ignoring you, I don't deny your existence. Granted, this area of agreement may not apply to agnostic pro-lifers, atheist pro-lifers, Jewish pro-lifers, or Muslim pro-lifers. To those of you who meet this description and any other dissenters I have left out, feel free to disregard what I'm about to say. Second, most of us correctly presume the overwhelming majority of pro-life supporters to remain on the hook, so to speak. That is because we associate pro-life politics with Christianity, and we do so because the pro-life movement wants us to do so. For that reason, I don't feel guilty about stereotyping pro-lifers into a Christian mold, at least not the way I'd feel guilty about you know, stereotyping Christians into a pro-life mold. That said, Agreement 5 should not surprise, but probably will absolutely stun most pro-life Christians. The immorality of abortion will not be reduced by making the practice stringently illegal. Will prohibiting abortion save the souls of women who otherwise would kill their unborn children? I've already given my answer away. 
That said, I would not presume to persuade Christians to agree with such a statement because I said so. No. If you want to persuade Christians, you need to cite Jesus Christ. Mind you, even the words of Jesus may not suffice. I'm aware of this paradox going in. In 1988, I heard a representative of Operation Rescue, a pro-life group, unwittingly deny the deity of God's Son in an effort to justify abortion clinic bombings and other potentially deadly acts of violence. That said, I still believe you have to tell Christians what Jesus has said and then have a little faith that most will listen. Here's the question. Let's say that Agreement 4 is short-sighted, and it is possible to effectively ban all abortions by curtailing supply. Somehow, women can be completely controlled, unable to seek illegal abortions, unable to travel internationally, and somehow unable even to jump in front of a fast-moving train. If we can make it impossible for a woman to carry out this sinful act, have we then saved both her soul and the unborn child? Jesus said, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Till heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I tell you that every one of you who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. His message is clear. God will judge us by what is in our heart, not the sum of our actions. If you are a fundamentalist Christian, or even merely a conservative Christian who believes in biblical inerrancy, then I need not quote Jesus further. The Bible is incapable of error. Jesus is incapable of error. Matthew's gospel is trenchant. However, if you are a pro-life Christian who is not convinced that Jesus and the Bible are incapable of error— the passage, called the Sermon on the Mount, begins with Matthew 5 and runs through chapter 7. Jesus restates his theme unambiguously, adding example after example about swearing, settlement of debts, and even spoken prayer in the public educational centers of Hebrew society. What does it mean to say that God will judge us by what is in our hearts? 
Well, if a woman wants to kill her unborn child, and the only thing stopping her is a stringently effective prohibition against abortion, then she will burn in hell. Wanting to kill her baby is the sin. Whether she acts on the desire is a matter that, you know, concerns only the salvation of the unborn child in an earthly sense. Although the woman may act in the correct manner from a pro-life perspective, she has not been saved. Ironically, the only way to bring salvation to the woman is to change her desire for an abortion. And if you do that, she would not kill her unborn child whether it is legal or not. If it sounds like agreements 4 and 5 are identical, that is reasonable. Nevertheless, there is a key difference. Despite Agreement 4, there may have been many devout pro-life Christians who believe God's will can be accomplished by cutting both the supply and demand for abortion at the same time. Agreement 5 makes it clear that this approach will actually circumvent the salvation of any woman who avoids abortion due to supply problems, but nevertheless still feels a strong desire to demand the procedure if it were possible. Many pro-life advocates are as short-sightedly focused on the child as pro-choice advocates are toward the woman. For that reason, I wouldn't be surprised if a contingency in the pro-life camp would find Agreement 5 inconsequential, for them saving the child is God's will and to hell with the woman. As a Christian, I would ask you to read again the words of Jesus. Did Christ hammer this theme because he wants us to be indifferent to the fate of the sinner? No. He wants us to look into our own hearts, but also to teach others. Teach what? We'll teach that refraining from killing is not enough. We must also refrain from wanting to kill. In other words, the immorality of abortion will not be reduced by making the practice stringently illegal. Amen. Hey everyone, it's Ian or Kano1988 from the forums. Uh, you might have already heard, but I'm uh, doing a sponsored skydive for Macmillan Cancer Support. So if any of you can help in any way, uh, donating even as little as a quid, that would be brilliant. Uh, if you can go to www.justgiving.com slash ian-pope. Uh, there are also links through Simply Read, uh, so if you can uh, get on there, that would be wonderful. Thanks very much, guys. We'll hit Agreement 6 next week with the second part of this inappropriate conversation about agreements over abortion. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.